mercy and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you that are still in school, and that may stretch all the way from preschool to elementary to middle school to high school to college or even graduate school, it may seem as though your education will never end. When, you might ask, will I get to apply all of this wonderful stuff that I'm learning out in the real world? I know that I often ask myself that question. I was not exactly the classic dumb jock in college, but because of my time commitments to my sport and my team, it did take me a couple of extra years to finish my engineering degree. Six years altogether. And then after I'd worked a full-time job for a couple of years, I decided that I wanted to go back to school and get an MBA. And so I enrolled in a program that met at night and on weekends, but I was getting transferred around a lot during those years, so it took me nearly eight years to finish all of the requirements. And then, just when I thought my education was over, ten years later, God decided I needed some more schooling. And so it was off to the seminary. And in order to keep our family life a little bit saner than it might otherwise have been, my studies got spread out over five years instead of the normal four-year program. So that adds up to a lot of years in school, even though not all of it was on a full-time basis. What about you? After your time in school, when you've completed all of your assignments and written all the papers, when you've passed all the exams and you're ready to receive that diploma. Graduation day comes and you walk across that stage, you get handed that certificate and get that handshake and then it's off to have a a party or two or maybe 12 with family and friends to celebrate your big accomplishment. And now what? What comes next? Maybe you've been in school for as long as you can remember. And going to class was the only routine that you really knew. But your life moves on ahead, not waiting. Your situation now changes. Now you need to go out there and find a job to put that education to work in the real world. As we observe the Feast of St. Matthias today and we hear the account from chapter 1 of the Acts of the Apostles, we discover that Jesus' followers are facing their own now-what moment. After three years of study in a traveling seminary with one divine instructor, the apostles are now, having been taught everything that Jesus was going to teach them in person, wonder what's next. The work of salvation had been accomplished for them on the cross. They had seen and they had heard the risen Lord for 40 days following his resurrection. Again, now what? Life went on, their routine had to change. They had a new assignment. Now it was time for them to put their education to work and to carry out the mission of the church. That second lesson that we heard today records a gathering of the infant Christian church. It took place in the ten-day period between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost. The apostles had seen Jesus rise into the heavens. Now what? Were they completely on their own? Was the Christian church now going to stand and fall based upon the effectiveness of the disciples' strategic planning? Did it depend on their business model, on their capital structure, or on their distribution channels? 
Well, it might have looked as though they were left on their own, but Jesus had promised them before His ascension, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And so He continues to be. Although Jesus was no longer visibly with His church, He still was with them because He had provided them the message that they were to proclaim. And we also would provide them with ministers to proclaim that message. The reading begins with a bit of a dilemma. St. Luke writes, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared in this ministry. Yes, Judas, one of the twelve, was no longer among their number. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, as you very well know, Judas betrayed Jesus. He led his enemies into that garden in the darkness to have him arrested. But not long after that, Judas realized what it was he had done. And in despair, he hung himself. The bottom line is that the apostles were now one short. Now, one could reasonably argue that it was not strictly necessary to replace Judas. And if God had not spoken about the issue, then we might agree it would be a fair observation. But God not only knew what Judas would do beforehand, He also wanted there to be a replacement for him. The proof for us comes in verse 20, where Peter quotes two different verses from the Psalms. The first quotation comes from Psalm 69. May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. The Holy Spirit directed St. Peter to this verse, which spoke about the Savior's enemies in the plural, but it could also be applied to one specific enemy, the one who had betrayed Jesus. The other quote comes from Psalm 109, and it spoke about the need to replace him. May another take his place of leadership. And so in light of all this, Peter comes forward with the following proposal. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so it seems the man to replace Judas needed to be someone who had been with Jesus since his baptism three years before in the Jordan until his ascension, which had taken place just a few days earlier. And Peter reveals here the key task that will fall to this new, new apostle. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Of all the many and various qualifications that this, replace, this replacement apostle might need to have, the first and foremost was that he must be an eyewitness who could testify to the resurrection of Jesus that very miraculous and yet very historical event on which the entire Christian faith hinges. If you had been there giving that speech, though, what criteria might you have chosen? If you were Peter, making that speech to this first century voters meeting, what would you have directed that assembly to do before rendering their choice? Would you have said, one of these men must possess a dynamic personality with us to preach to all creation? Or might it have been, one of these men must become a great philanthropist with us to do godly acts of love throughout the region? Or maybe, 
one of these men must have a keen awareness of human psychology with us so that together we can better penetrate the human soul. Don't misunderstand me, please. It is a good thing for ministers to be somewhat likable, to love people, and to understand what makes them tick. But none of those things made the top of Peter's list of requirements for apostolic ministry. And we dare not sit here and think that we have to remember that the gospel is so important. Without that, nothing is accomplished. The church's mission hinges on that first and foremost. But our sinful flesh is very good convincing us and deterring us from the fact that Christ's death and resurrection are at the very core and are the only way to get the job done. And so each and every day we pass by opportunities to proclaim Jesus to our friends and relatives because, well, they're just not the religious type. Or we rationalize that our neighbor won't accept the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection because they are so unbelievable. It's not that building bridges and established relationships are our problem. We can do those just fine. Rather, our challenge is in actually crossing those bridges and being willing to risk our earthly human relationships as we present the resurrection gospel. That is when we doubt the effectiveness of Jesus' message. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is the message He has given us to proclaim. And the beauty of the gospel is that it is based on real historical facts. And it carries so much meaning and significance and brings comfort along with it. The resurrection of Jesus means that God the Father has fully accepted Christ's atoning death to wipe away your sin. Yes, even your sins of doubt, your failures to trust in the power of His resurrection and the power of His Word. The resurrection of Jesus says to all who believe that heaven is open to you. A place is waiting for you at the table forever. The resurrection says to every repentant soul who's been filled with faith in Christ that your heart may be comforted, may be stilled. Your conscience can rest easy, for death has been swallowed up in Christ's death, and now the living Lord grants you eternal life. Let's go back again to our first century voters meeting. Peter has stated the qualifications, and now came the nominations. They proposed two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Now, we really don't know too much about these two candidates. The church father and historian Eusebius, who lived in the late 300s and early 400s, he wrote that both of these men were part of that group of 70 that Jesus had sent out to evangelize. Now, Eusebius is much closer to the events than you and I are, so he very well may be right but without archaeological proof or biblical witness to it, we really can't be sure. What we can say confidently is what happened next. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles." With two equally valid choices between them and before them, the apostles prayed to the Lord, and they asked Him to guide the process. And then they followed the Old Testament custom of casting lots. Now we should note here that this merely describes what happened in this instance. It's not necessarily a recommendation for how we should make our decisions. But with the candidates down to just those two, 
they left it in the hands of the Lord. Perhaps they were thinking of Proverbs 16.33, which reads, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see, our Christian ancestors recognized this process for what it is. Not something that occurs by mere chance, not a popularity vote like when you call into Dancing with the Stars or American Idol, but rather a divine call from the Lord Himself. Although we are looking at chapter 1 in Acts as our reading this morning, flip ahead a little bit to chapter 20 and you'll see just how the early church understood the true source of calling apostles. In that instance, St. Paul is bidding farewell to the leaders of the church at Ephesus that he had founded. And even though there had been a human process that appointed these leaders to serve, Paul said this to them in his farewell speech, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Yes, people may have appointed them, but Paul recognized that the Holy Spirit had called them to serve. Jesus had kept His promise to be with His church by providing proclaimers of His resurrection. And that is ultimately the job of pastors, to take people back to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. When we stand before you and we say, I forgive you all of your sins, we are announcing to you that the fruits of Christ's cross are yours. The benefits of Jesus' resurrection are your hope. When we stand at the font and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, there we connect souls to the Word of God through the power of the Spirit and the Word. When you kneel at this altar and you hear, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. There the crucified and risen Lord is truly among us and He is truly feeding you. His body and His blood preview that resurrection feast that we all enjoy forever in heaven. And so when Satan or when a guilty conscience plagues you, when they try to accuse you, what a comfort it is to hear God's Word tell you that God forgives you for Jesus' sake. When the harshness of life brings you down, what a joy it is to be uplifted by the message of the risen Jesus, whose resurrection provides us hope, hope that can never be shaken. And when the reality of death haunts you, what a peaceful thing it is to be provided and pointed to the empty tomb of Jesus, knowing that the rising of His crucified body declares to you forgiveness and our hope for a future resurrection of our own from the dead. After His resurrection, Jesus had promised His apostles, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And so He is. And that promise was not fulfilled by a commemorative plaque or simply by fond recollections. No, Jesus keeps that promise through a message, through the message, the message proclaimed by Matthias and by all of those that God has chosen to declare the joy, comfort, and peace of His resurrection to our souls. Jesus' message is not just life-changing. It is eternity-changing. He has ensured His church and assured His church that it will continue to have apostles in the heritage of Matthias and the others to proclaim it. You know this message. It is a message that is simple and yet profound. And it may be very strange to hear it during this season of Lent and try very hard to suppress that alleluia, but here it is. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen.